invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. In December, I started a new series for the evening, working through the Ten Commandments. And last time, we looked at the introduction to the Ten Commandments in verses 1 and 2. And I argued why I believe the Ten Commandments are still in force for God's people. And so this evening, we come to the first commandment in verse 3. But before we hear God's word to us this evening, let us call upon our God in prayer. A merciful Father, we declare as your people have declared for millennia that you alone are God, and there is no other. So I pray that as we hear your word tonight, that you would again, by your spirit, incline our hearts to Christ as our one Lord and Savior. I pray that you would teach us more what it means to walk in obedience to your glorious command to have no other gods before you. Lord, draw near to us now as we seek to draw near to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Israel had lived in a land of idolatry for 400 years. The Egyptians worshipped many gods. Ra, Horus, Osiris, Set, Isis, Amunet, and many others. And Israel was now on their way to another land of rampant idolatry. The Canaanites also had their own gods. Baal and Asherah, Dagon, Molech, Milcom, and again many more. Israel lived in a world of many gods and many lords. So do we, even though they do not all take the same form. And so, as God gathered his people before him at Mount Sinai, having delivered them from slavery in Egypt, he thundered before them, I am the Lord your God. And then he commanded them, you shall have no other gods before me. And this is the first of the Ten Commandments. It is first because it is foundational, establishing God as the only God, as our God, and as the God to whom all glory belongs. This 
commandment in one sense grounds all of the others. And it's why God's commandments are not just true for one people at one time in one place like Israel, but they are true for all people at all times in all places, including true for us. For if there is one God alone, then he alone is the God of all, and all must worship him. This command is why there is no moral relativism, no moral subjectivism. The first commandment establishes the relationship between God and his people, which all of the other commands are going to explain how we live in that relationship. But this command establishes the relationship. And it establishes the relationship between God and his people as an exclusive relationship of both love and trust. And so this evening, I'm going to consider that, highlighting those three key words, exclusive, love, and trust. So number one, this relationship is exclusive. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, no other ancient religion prohibited the worship of other gods. All ancient peoples assumed there are a lot of gods, and they assumed every nation's just going to worship their own, and we don't have to get worked up about it. So Israel was to be unique in this regard because God will not tolerate idols and idolatry. Tolerance is not always a good thing. There are things we should not tolerate and God will not tolerate rivals. Now, some argue that this commandment is really just establishing a hierarchy, not exclusivity. They suggest the commandment actually shares the ancient assumption that there were many gods, and the God of Israel was just asking, I need to come first in your worship. You, you can worship other gods, but they just can't come before me. I'm first. Everyone else is after me. So is God the only God, or is he just first among the gods, like Zeus in the Greek pantheon? Is he to be worshipped just above all others, or is he to be worshipped alone? What does God mean exactly when he says, you shall have no other gods before me? Some translate it, besides me, but it literally reads, before my face. That phrase has a, a time component and a, a presence component. It can, in one sense, mean, while I am still alive. So you have no other gods while I live. But it also means, in my presence. So, comprehensively, God is saying, you shall have no other gods as long as I live and wherever I am present. And how long does God live? Forever. And where is God present? Every 
where. So God is not merely saying, I come first among the gods. He's not saying, all right, guys, don't, don't place other gods above me in the hierarchy. He's saying, you shall never have another God as long as I live, which is always, and wherever I am present, which is everywhere, whether you're in Egypt, whether you're in the wilderness, whether you are in Canaan. So think of marriage when you think of the first commandment. When a husband makes his vow to his wife, he, he's, he's not promising, right? I will love you more than I love all my other wives. The wife is not promising, I'll love you more than I love all my other husbands. Marriage is not a hierarchical relationship. It is an exclusive relationship. And Christianity is establishing an exclusive relationship. If a husband dies, a wife is free to take another husband. But God never dies, so we're not ever free to take another God. And imagine the level of contempt in a marriage if the husband or wife not only committed adultery, but they actually brought their lover into their house and committed the act in the very presence of their spouse. That's a whole other level of contempt. But that's what idolatry is always like. God most often compares Israel's idolatry to adultery. That's how he accuses them. They're not just taking other lovers. They're taking other lovers while God is watching. But is God acknowledging the existence of other gods in this command? Because he could still be saying, I'm your only God. You, you just don't have any of the others admitting that there are others. Well, no, I don't believe he is. He's not acknowledging the existence of other gods. He is, as one commentator explains, acknowledging the alluring power of other gods. God never acknowledges another rival. In Isaiah chapter 45, he says, And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So he's very clear. He doesn't have to give this command because there are other gods. When teaching the Corinthians how to deal with food that has been sacrificed to idols, Paul likewise explains Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So the Bible is clear. There are not actually other gods. In this commandment, therefore, God is not admitting other gods. He's acknowledging that we often make gods out of things that are not God. He's not acknowledging the existence of some reality in the world. He's acknowledging the existence of a reality in our hearts. 
The reality is we sing in that beautiful hymn that we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God that we should love. Baal did not exist in Canaan, but the worship of Baal existed in Canaan. Allah does not exist, but Islam does. Idols are always man-made. We make them in our minds. We make them with our hearts. We make them with our hands. So the first commandment is establishing that there is one God alone and that he alone is to be our God. So atheism is a violation of the first commandment. You might think, well, they're not having any God, so they're not having another God. They just have no God. Well, the first commandment establishes there is a God who is to be your, your God. So atheism is breaking this commandment. Idolatry is also breaking this commandment in whatever form that it takes. Whether we are following another religion, whether we are worshiping nature, whether we are worshiping our possessions, our pleasures, or ourselves. We are to exist in an exclusive relationship with God. Our worship exclusively is directed to God. For God will not share his glory with anyone or anything else. Which means in the Christian life, there is no such thing as God and. There's no and. We cannot replace God. We cannot add to God. We cannot live for God and for our family. We can't live for God and money. We cannot live for God and our comfort and our pleasure and our safety. Jesus was clear in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Christianity is an exclusive relationship. Unless we think, oh, come on, God is sure making a lot of rules already. He's our only God. Again, think, do, do we get upset when husbands and wives make these kind of vows to one another? What kind of man is this that he wants to be her only husband and she's his only wife? I mean, come on, guys, get with the times. No, we don't see these things as bad and restrictive. We see this kind of exclusive relationship as the height of love. The relationship is exclusive, and so our worship is exclusive. But what exactly does that demand? How do we know if we're violating the first commandment? Well, like all good relationships, our relationship with the Lord is built on love and trust. And I think it is right to say that we are worshiping what we love the most and we are worshiping what we trust the most. So the first aspect is love. Every commandment, all of the Ten Commandments, whether they're stated positively or negatively, have both a positive and a negative side to them. There are things we are not to do 
but there's also implicitly things that we are supposed to do. So what's the positive side of the first commandment? We've, we've heard have no other gods, but then what does that mean we are to positively do? Well, Moses helps us in Deuteronomy 6. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Because God is the one and only God, we are to love God with all of us. Now, kids... As a general rule, sharing is, is good. Parents, we often try to teach our kids to share. But there are some things we should not share. Again, thinking of marriage, the love between a husband and a wife is not something you share with another man or woman. And love is comprehensive. It encompasses our, our thoughts, our affections, our attitudes, and our actions. Remember when Jesus said, you can't serve two masters, how did he describe that service? As loving one, being devoted to one above the other. So when we're thinking about the first commandment and whether or not we are obeying it, one of the first line of questions we should be asking is, what do we love? We know what we love when we ask these questions. Well, what excites us the most? What are we thinking the most about when we just daydream? What do we love to talk about? What are we looking forward to? What do we give most of our time to or spend our resources on? See, idols are not usually today made of stone. Idols can be sports. It can be recreations, hobbies, personal interests, luxuries, careers, health and fitness, ministry, families, desires and aspirations. And you hear in that list, idols are not always bad things in and of themselves. Often our idols are good things that for us have become ultimate things. Again, imagine if a husband tells his wife, honey, I love you. I love when we spend time together and I, I plan to keep spending time with you. But I've also met somebody else and sometimes I'm going to spend the night with her and sometimes on date nights I'm, I'm going out with her. Do you think the wife will say, oh, honey, I'm, I'm just so glad that you still want me in your life and that I can be a part of your life to, to any degree, whatever you allow. Of course not. Any self-respecting wife will say, it's me or her. You don't get both. We're not sharing. And the same is true with God. God doesn't come to us and say, oh, I'll just take whatever you can give me. Whatever time, whatever resources, you just... Give me five minutes where we can converse when you pray and, and read my word. And, you know, if, if you don't have other things going on or you're not too tired, I would, I would love to meet with you in, in corporate worship. But, but whatever you can give me, oh, I'll, I'll just be so thankful to be a part of your life. No, God doesn't settle for part 
of our heart, of our mind, of our will, of our time. He rightfully demands all of us. There is no God and. Now, does this mean we, we can't love our families or our jobs or vacations? No, it just means we don't love them in the sense that we love God. They are not our chief end. We, we aren't loving them instead of or in addition to God. By that, I mean that our love for other people and other things are not actually to be separated from or outside of God. God commands us to love him with everything. And so in one sense, our love for others is our love for God channeled through others on their way to the Lord. So if, if love is like flowing water, water may pass through and, and, and touch many things on its way to its, its final resting spot. So our love will touch many people and many God-given goods, but it does not settle on any of them. It does not settle them and say, ah, this is where I am meant to be. It keeps flowing until it reaches the one from whom it came. God is always the chief end of our love. So again, just think, no other person, no other thing is where the love stops, where it terminates. It's not its final destination. In its explanation of the first commandment, the Westminster Larger Catechism says this, and whenever you, you start thinking, you know, I think I'm doing pretty well obeying the Ten Commandments, just go to the Westminster Larger Catechism, which tells you what duties it requires of you and what sins it forbids, and then see how ridiculously long those lists are, and you're probably not going to feel like you're doing really good. So if you just, you're, you're just too high in life and you need to bring yourself down, catechism can be helpful. But this is what the Westminster Larger Catechism says regarding what duties this requires. It says the duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him and sorrowful when in anything he is offended and walking humbly with him. It's all that it's asking us to do. The sins prohibited is about three times as long as that list. But do at the very least hear the language of love in that explanation. We are to love God in our thoughts, thinking well of him, thinking accurately of him. This is one reason why doctrine matters. And we don't just read our Bibles and say, yeah, I know Christians don't agree on a lot of these different points, but yeah, who really cares? Well, God really cares. He wants us to know him truly. He wants us to think of him accurately. But the love of God is not just right thinking. It's right feeling, 
and its right doing. We must have the proper affections and the proper obedience. So we are to love God in a way we don't love anyone or anything else because we worship what we love and we are to worship God alone. But we also worship what we trust. That's the third piece this evening. You should have also heard the language of trust in the catechism's answer. Because just as we worship what we love, we worship what we trust. Because we turn to, we depend upon, we call upon what we trust. Thomas Watson said, to trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. Because God also says in Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. So when you're in trouble, when you're scared, when things aren't going the way you want them to go, what do you immediately turn your mind to, to, to give you a sense of hope, to give you the feeling, you know, it, it's going to be okay. Where do you turn in, in trials? Who do you call? All of this exposes where we have placed our trust. So when you get sick, is your first thought, oh, I'm really glad I have health insurance. When you lose your job, is your first thought, I'm really glad that I built up my savings and, and have a good pension. Is your trust in insurance, in money, a job, a house, your spouse, your family, your reputation? Is it in science and medicine and technology? Again, you should notice that all of those things are good things, and we should thank God for them, and we should use them. But we should not trust in them. They should not be what gives us a sense of hope. We use them as a means of God's provision, but we give thanks to God. We find comfort knowing who God is, and we fight our fears remembering that God is our God. If God is our trust, then we should first turn our minds and our hearts to Him in prayer. For prayer is the voice of trust. I hope you, you see in all of this that the first commandment is not just demanding sincerity in our faith and love and trust. Because we can have a very sincere faith in a lot of different things. We can sincerely love and trust other things. It's not about sincerity in and of itself. It's about where our love and trust and faith and worship are directed. And so we must ask ourselves if these things are directed to God alone. Because we are all prone to idolatry. And which idol are we most prone to turn to and worship? The idol of ourselves. There is no greater idol than the idol of the self. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they did so because they wanted to be God. When they took the fruit in their hand, in one sense, they were trying to reach into heaven and take the glory that belonged to God alone. God loves us, 
but he will not even suffer us to be his rival. I was kidding about the larger catechism bringing you down. The, the catechisms actually encourage me a lot. But at the same time, when we start to really understand what is required in these commandments, it does not take long for us to feel overwhelmed and realize I haven't even gotten past the first commandment and I've broken it in all kinds of ways that I didn't even realize I was breaking it. Because sins forbidden in the first commandment are ignorance, forgetfulness, false opinions, unworthy thoughts of God, distrust, despair, pride, thinking God is too hard on us, and about 50 other things. Obedience can quickly feel insurmountable when we realize that God's law doesn't just demand, well, do the best you can. So what do we do when we are overwhelmed with God's commands and we recognize our many sins and failures in even keeping the first commandment, let alone the other nine? Well, we must remind ourselves that Christ has transposed the law with each of these commandments. I like Kevin DeYoung's language of transposition when it comes to the law, even better than the language of transformation. Because Christ has not changed the law in the sense that it, it means something now that it didn't mean before. More accurately, what Christ has done is he has transposed it. Because when you transpose a, a piece of music, the melody stays the same. You're just playing it in a different key. And this is how we should view the Ten Commandments in light of Christ. The Ten Commandments are still God's commandments to his people, but they have been transposed by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Because when Christ came, God commanded us to listen to and worship him. It's not actually surprising that the Jews in Jesus' day reacted very strongly to what Jesus was claiming, and they didn't like it. What was he ultimately accused of? Why did the Jews want to kill Jesus? Well, they accused him of blasphemy. Essentially, they were accusing him of breaking the first commandment, of making himself to be God. And they knew there's only one God and we can't have any other gods. So if Jesus is not God, then he absolutely deserved to die. But this is the wonder of the gospel. Because Jesus is not another God. Jesus is the one true God. When God descended upon, upon Mount Sinai in the cloud, he said, You're, you worship me alone. You, you listen to me and nobody else. But when God descended upon the Mount of Transfiguration in a cloud, he said of Jesus, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's gospel transposition. It means you cannot now know and worship the one God if you do not know and worship Christ. 
for you can only know God and worship him truly in Christ. Which means we obey the first commandment only when we direct our love and place our trust in Jesus. The exclusive relationship between a husband and his wife is established as the relationship between Christ and his church. So what now is ultimately obedience to the first commandment? It is to turn by faith to Christ. Loving Jesus is obeying the first commandment. Trusting Jesus is obeying the first commandment. The commandment commands us, go to Jesus by faith. We love him. We praise him. We call upon him. We trust him. We thank him. Remember Paul's words in Philippians 2. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that, that makes no sense unless Jesus is God. But Paul says... Jesus has been set above everybody else, but when we worship him, when we bow before him, it glorifies the Father. It's not a rival God set up against the Father. It is glorifying the Father to worship the Son. And this is where we find our comfort when we see our sin with respect to the first commandment. Because we are not only to turn to Jesus with our sufferings, we are to turn to Jesus with our sins. So when we realize that we have broken the first commandment, we turn to Christ. And in this way now, we are actually obeying the first commandment. For the Father said, listen to my Son. And Jesus said, come to me. And when we listen to Jesus, we trust him when he says, as he said many times throughout his ministry, your sins are forgiven. God said in Isaiah 45, there is one Savior, and you turn to him. In Christ, God has revealed that Savior. And so we turn to him alone for our salvation. So Christian worship is now obedience to the first commandment as it has been transposed by Christ. Christian prayer is the first commandment transposed by Christ. Christian faith is the first commandment transposed by Christ. So would you obey God's command? Turn to Christ by faith. For there is no other Lord. There is no other Savior. Do not wed yourself to another Savior. Do not submit to another Lord. Do not worship another God. For God is still calling to his people in Christ, I am the Lord your God. And he is still commanding his people in Christ, you shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I am sure we all must confess that we have 
often broken this commandment. Adding other loves and pleasures to our lives that are rivaling you for our thoughts and affections and time. Forgive us when we love other things or people more than you. Forgive us when we turn to and trust in other things and people above you. But Lord, we ask that as we turn to you now through faith in Jesus Christ, that you would forgive us and that you would keep encouraging us to look to him alone. May you awaken our affections for Jesus. May Jesus be the comfort that soothes our anxious and weary souls. We thank you that in him we have forgiveness and that he never broke this command and his righteousness by faith is counted as ours. It's in his name we pray. Amen.